Please uh, turn with me in your Bibles um, to John chapter 7. We also have it on the screen. Um, we're going to consider this evening uh, the story of uh, when Jesus went public with his ministry. It was the occasion of the Feast of Tabernacles, um, and on that occasion, he made some very significant statements. And so uh, we're going to begin reading with John chapter 7, verse 1, and then we'll be reading uh, later on in the chapter as well. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea, because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. But when the Jewish feast of the tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, You ought to leave here and go to Judea, so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. And so the disciples were, or Jesus' brothers were saying to him, uh, Jesus, you need uh, more exposure. Uh, you need to get out there more. Uh, you need to let everyone know a little bit more about you. Uh, you're a public figure. Um, so get out there. For even his own disciples did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, the right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. You go to the feast. I am not yet going up to the feast because for me, the right time has not yet come. Having said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the feast, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the feast, the Jews were watching for him and asking, where is that man? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. Not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts where he began to teach. The Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having studied? And then I go down to verse 33. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up till that time, the Spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. 
On hearing these words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Others said, he is the Christ. Still others says, how can Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Jesus' brothers pushed him to attend the Feast of Tabernacles. It was one of the great three great feasts observed by the people of Israel. The first in the calendar year was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which included the Passover feast. The second was the Feast of Weeks. And then the third, late in the year, was the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus says to his brothers, in effect, no, not right now. I'm not going to go to the feast. At this point in time, the scripture makes clear that Jesus' brothers did not yet believe in him. And, by the way, two of these brothers of Jesus ended up being writers of New Testament books, James and Jude. At this point in their lives, however, Jesus' brothers were thinking like people of the world. They organized their lives and made their decisions uh, without any reference to God's purposes. Jesus says to his brothers, the right time for me has not yet come. For you guys, any time is okay, because the world doesn't hate you. I have to be more careful, because they are angry, many people are angry with me because of the fact that I testify that what they do is evil. So the brothers end up going down to Jerusalem on their own. Jesus had to be circumspect, because the timing was not right. He explicitly says the time isn't right for me. Now, it's fascinating to me that in the Greek New Testament, there are two words for time. One is kairos, and the other is chronos. Uh, The word chronos, we get the word chronology from. It's the idea of one event after another uh, without attaching any significance to those events. Kairos, on the other hand, has the idea of a significant occasion. Uh, an opportune time. Um, and so it's an it's a occasion in which there's an opportunity for the kingdom of God to advance in a significant way. And so Jesus says, the kairos time for me has not yet come. It is not yet the opportune time to go public. That's what he tells him. But then what happens? A day or two later, Jesus also goes down to Jerusalem, not publicly, but in secret, because at least for the first half of the feast, he wanted to keep a low profile, because he knew the Jews were out to kill him. At the same time, he was also aware that there would be a kairos moment sometime during the feast of the week-long celebration. About halfway through the feast, when the crowds were at their maximum level, Jesus stands up in the temple courts and begins to teach. And the Jews were just amazed at his ability. How in the world did he get this kind of ability to teach? He's never been to any of our rabbinical schools. 
And then on the last day of the feast, the greatest day, Jesus stands and makes this marvelous invitation. He says in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, streams of living water will flow from within him. Now, a little bit of background about the Feast of Tabernacles. When the people of Israel were in the Sinai Desert some 1,300 years earlier, they lived in booths, temporary shelters. And so to remember that time in the wilderness, the people of Israel during the time of Christ would build booths next to their homes during the Feast of Tabernacles, and during that one week of celebration, they would live in those booths and reflect on the experience that their ancestors went through 1,300 years earlier. And also, at the Feast of Tabernacles, they would remember another event from that time that their ancestors were in the wilderness, and that was how God provided water from the rock. The way they commemorated the provision of water was that during the Feast of Tabernacles, every day, the priests, many priests, would file in procession to the Pool of Siloam. They'd have these big, huge jugs, fill up those jugs with water, and then they would come back to the temple courts area, and they would walk up the steps of the Temple Mount. And as they were walking up the steps of the Temple Mount, uh, the people would break out into songs of praise to God. When those priests, priests would reach the top of the Temple Mount, they would take these jugs of water and pour them out onto the pavement below. And that would instill in everybody's mind, they would uh, be thinking how God had abundantly provided water for their ancestors many hundreds of years earlier. But on the last day of the feast, the greatest day, the eighth day, the priests wouldn't repeat that process. And that symbolized the fact that when their ancestors entered Canaan many centuries earlier, God had filled that need. They didn't need water from the rock because Canaan was a well-watered land, at least in comparison with the desert. God had demonstrated his abundant goodness to them in giving them this productive land of Canaan. On the last and greatest day of the feast, that eighth day, what does Jesus do? He stands up and in a loud voice, he shouts out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, streams of living water will flow from within him. Very significant. Jesus was claiming that he himself was the fulfillment of that water that flowed in the desert centuries earlier. He was asserting that he was able to satisfy the thirst of their heart, able to satisfy the thirst of everyone on the planet. Today also, Jesus invites people to drink deeply from the wells of salvation. It's a well-meant offer that's extended to everyone. Anyone who's hurting, anyone who doesn't have any purpose, any direction to his life, anyone who's searching for meaning to them, Jesus says, come to me and drink. Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters, says Isaiah. 
The last chapter of the Bible says, whoever is thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him take of the free gift of the water of life. And people can drink as much as they like. Jesus says, in effect, drink of me until the thirstiness of your heart is completely quenched. He wants everyone to know that there's an abundant supply. Jesus told the woman at the well that if she drank of the living water, she would never thirst again. He is able to meet the deepest needs of our hearts. Listen again to Jesus' promise. Whoever believes in me, streams of water will flow from within him. Not a trickle, not a stream, but multiple streams of water flowing out of a single fountain in our hearts. All of us have, at some time in our lives, experienced spiritual dryness. Spiritual dryness is a growth inhibitor. It's a drag. It's not fun. You know you're a long ways away from God, and deep down inside, you're feeling lousy. Many people in our nation have every physical need satisfied, but they're dying of thirst spiritually. They desperately need to drink of Jesus and experience the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. The Gospel writer John gives fuller explanation. He makes it clear that when Jesus spoke about these streams of water, he was, in fact, referring to the Holy Spirit. And he explains that, at this point, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. However, on the day of Pentecost, then the Holy Spirit was poured out and those streams of water began to flow. Those gathered were empowered to share the good news with those in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. It was the Holy Spirit who gave the impetus to the disciples to carry out the Great Commission. The living water that Jesus provides is one of a kind. It's the water of life. When verse 37 speaks about living water, the Greek word for living there is zoe. I'm learning that some parents today are naming their children zoe. What a great name. Because there's another Greek word for life, and that's bios, that refers to biological life, physical existence. Zoe, however, speaks about fullness of life, richness of life, life that comes only through the work of the Holy Spirit. There is a river in the Atlantic Ocean, about 150 miles off the east coast of our country. In the severest droughts, it never fails, and in the mightiest floods, it never overflows. Its sides and bottom are of cold water, while the current itself is warm. Its fountain is in the Gulf of Mexico, not far from the tip of Florida. Its mouth is in the Arctic seas. It's known as the Gulf Stream. Nowhere in the world can you find such a majestic flow of water. Its current is more rapid than the Mississippi or the Amazon, and its volume more than a thousand times greater. The Gulf Stream is about 60 miles wide, about a half mile deep. And it stretches out along the Atlantic coast for hundreds of miles. Its waters are indigo blue. 
At about 40 degrees north, it splits into two, with a northern stream crossing to northern Europe and the southern stream recirculating off West Africa. The Gulf Stream's biggest influence is on the climate of northern Europe. Countries like the United Kingdom and Ireland and other countries enjoy warmer temperatures than other countries of that same northern latitude because of the Gulf Stream. The coast of Norway is free, northern Norway is free of snow and ice because of the Gulf Stream and its warm winds. Now, the Gulf Stream is like the power of the Holy Spirit. It has immeasurable strength and an abundant supply. You can have as much as you like. And so the question for each one of us today is, do we have streams of living water flowing from within us? Is there a surge of life-giving Holy Spirit power flowing from within our hearts? And if those streams aren't flowing, we need to ask ourselves, why? What is it that's hindering the flow? Now, I want to clarify that having the Holy Spirit within us does not mean that there's never any fatigue. We're still going to get tired. Sometimes the energy level dwindles. The Apostle Paul was exhausted at times. Jesus, on occasion, experienced weariness. The tiredness is going to be there. But the exciting part is renewal of strength. Those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar like eagles. Though the outward nature is wasting away, the inward nature is being renewed day by day. Think for a moment about the example of the Syrophoenician woman of Mark 7 who had a daughter with an evil spirit. She comes to Jesus, asks him to beg, begs him to drive out the demon. Jesus' response is cold, as cold as winter in Saskatchewan. It's not right, he says, to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Excuse me, Jesus, you call me a dog, I'm out of here. No, she doesn't say that. Instead, she says, yes, Jesus, but even the dogs get a few crumbs from underneath the table. When Jesus heard that response, right away he thought, now that kind of response indicates that my father is working, indicates that the Holy Spirit is working. And so he says to her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. Jesus was being alert and responsive to the working of the Holy Spirit. He knew that in this particular situation, God was at work. Just from the response that this woman had, that was a response of faith. And so uh, he knew that the Holy Spirit was working And so he was alert to that. And the challenge to each one of us is to be alert and responsive to the work of the Holy Spirit. When we're in Papua New Guinea, we try to be alert and responsive to what God is doing. Um, Over the last three or four years, we've had some wonderful opportunity to do leadership workshops uh, for government officials in PNG. Thus far now, we've conducted six workshops in three different provinces for government officials. Um, 
on the provincial level. And uh, let me give you a little bit of background about that. Um, we were first in Papua New Guinea uh, from 1980 to 85. And so back about uh, 27 years ago, 29 years ago, something like that, we started a Bible school in Borbi province, which is a couple provinces over from where we are in the East Seaford province. Um, that Bible school lasted only about three years because uh, there was dispute about land, and so we ended up um, closing it uh, because they were demanding big money for uh, the Bible school facility. Anyway, uh, fast forward about 20 years, and it was about five years ago um, that the man who's in charge of education for that entire province, which is the largest, most populous province of Papua New Guinea, uh, approached us and said, hey, we'd like you and the locals would like you to come back uh, to that area, that Guhu Samani area, and restart that Bible school. Okay, well, we'll consider that. Uh, to make a long story short, that didn't happen. But when Penny and I traveled to the capital, uh, to the capital of that province, Lay, then we met with this man who was in charge of education for the province, and he says, hey, I'd like you to meet my boss. Um, he's the deputy provincial administrator. So uh, we met with the boss, and previously, Bihoro, the education guy, had given him a copy of some Pacific Island Ministries books, and he had read those. And, um, then uh, we were meeting with him in his office, this guy that was running the entire province, and uh, he, he makes this statement to us, uh, we are desperate to improve the effectiveness of the public service. I heard that statement and I thought, wow, that's quite a statement. Uh, next day we met with him again and I said to him, you know, we've never done any leadership workshops for government officials before, but we're willing to give it a go. And then one thing led to another and the following year we conducted our first leadership workshop for government officials doing this from a Christian perspective and, and they all know that it's coming from a Christian perspective. Um, and so we rejoice in that great opportunity. Imagine in the state of Michigan or Illinois conducting a leadership workshop for top officials in the state and doing so from a Christian perspective. It's a rare thing to happen anywhere in the world. Um, but we rejoice in what the Lord is doing. Many of these government officials have budgets of 200000 a year, some of them up to $3 million a year. They were all very receptive and responsive. Not all of them Christian, but even those who weren't Christian were respectful of what we were teaching. And PNG, by the way, is a very corrupt country. Um, not only on the national level, but on the provincial levels too. Uh, there's just not near enough accountability in place and many politicians make off with great sums of money. Another opportunity that was very exciting for us this year was that we had a, uh, conducted a pastor's course in Goroka, in the highlands of Papua New Guinea. Goroka is one of the five largest cities in the country. Um, and uh, there were about 30, 35 pastors that were in attendance at this conference. Um, and uh, they were very responsive, uh, pastors from all different denominations. Uh, and then we asked them about RI. 
how many of you are involved in teaching RI? RI, by the way, is religious instruction. It's done in, um, the PNG government made a decision that, uh, in which they mandated RI for all the schools in the country. Uh, so that myself as a missionary, I can go to Ambunti High School where we live in the interior in Papua New Guinea, go to the principal of the high school and say, hey, I'd like to teach RI to the ninth graders and 10th graders. And the principal would say to me, great, we'll sign you up for Wednesday morning from 10 o'clock till 1040. Uh, and this happens all across the country. So that not only missionaries, but also in the vast majority of the cases, it's uh, national pastors, Papua New Guinea pastors, who uh, make arrangements to teach RI in the public schools. Um, and so this is, uh, I asked all these pastors in this conference in Garoka, how many of you are involved in RI? Well, a good share of them, a great, a great many of them well, were involved in teaching RI. And uh, so I says, what about materials? So, no, we don't have any materials, we just, we just preach, okay? Uh, but they need materials. They would very much like to have materials. So we're using materials uh, such as um, a book, Thea Van Halsmas, some of you may have been instructed in this book way back 30, 40, 50 years ago. Uh, Thea Van Halsma wrote the book, With All My Heart. Well, Penny's parents, about 15, 20 years ago, uh, took that book, consulted with Dick and Thea Van Halsma, and uh, recontextualized that book for Papua New Guinea. Uh, and so it's being used, we've probably distributed somewhere around 35,000 copies of this book in public schools and, and these pastors are eager to use uh, this kind of materials. It's turned out to be a very practical resource for us in Papua New Guinea. A little bit of information for you. About 80% of all Christians today are non-Western Christians. They live in the majority world, Latin America, Asia, Africa, Middle East, and then also 75% of pastors in the majority world do not have the privilege of Bible school training. And so these 30 pastors who were at the conference, uh, it was my privilege to teach these pastors on uh, various topics, uh, topics such as how to teach on sorcery. Sorcery and uh, the fear of sorcery is a growing problem in Papua New Guinea. Just this past week, I read in the newspaper again. Uh, every day I get online when I'm in, living in Kalamazoo now before we go back to PNG. Every day I get online and read the newspapers in Papua New Guinea, the Post Courier. And uh, even this past week, there was an article to the effect that uh, the problem of sorcery is a growing problem in PNG. Land disputes, number one reason people kill each other and engage in tribal warfare, which is a huge issue in Papua New Guinea, is they're fighting over land. Misappropriation of funds, uh, spousal abuse. Pastors need training in how to address these different topics because uh, in their congregations, so many of them uh, are struggling with issues like sorcery. For example, if their child uh, is, gets sick and the sickness lasts for a few days or a week or so, they'll, they'll pray. So, but if that sickness extends to four weeks, five weeks, six weeks, or something like that, then 
there's just a powerful pull to go to the sorcery man or the sorcery woman in town and pay that sorcery person some serious money, um, which is a violation of what the Word of God teaches. So it's exciting to see uh, these pastors who are so responsive and hunger and eager to learn. They are experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And so the challenge for each one of us today is to keep on being thirsty, to keep on drinking deeply from Christ. And if you drink from him, the promise is that streams of living water will continue to flow from your heart. Drinking deeply from Christ is the key to the Holy Spirit working powerfully in our lives. In the Old Testament, God provided fresh water from the rock for his people in the desert. And it was the provision of that fresh water that they celebrated at the Feast of Tabernacles. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4 says, All those people in the desert, centuries earlier, they ate the same spiritual food, they drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank, it says, from the rock that followed them, the rock that accompanied them. And says 1 Corinthians 10, that rock was Christ. Now, it's kind of an interesting picture that it paints. You know, for, I was a pastor in uh, various churches in the United States for about 15 years, and I guess for most of my life, I thought that uh, that provision of rock, the, the provision of water, there were two separate incidents uh, during the time that the people of Israel were in the wilderness, uh, that that was maybe a one-day kind of uh, water flowing from the rock. Uh, but now I'm, I'm starting to think about it a lot more. Maybe it lasted a much longer period of time. Uh, but what the scripture says, that the rock followed them. You kind of get the idea that the, there was a rock that actually moved and followed the people around in the desert. Uh, but then it says that rock was Christ. So how long that water provided for their needs, whether it was one day or a week or month or five years, uh, we don't know the answer to that. Um, but we do know that that rock was Christ, that that was Christ who was providing that fresh water in the desert for those people of Israel. And it was Christ in New Testament time, who, and in our time today, who is the living water, who meets the deepest needs of our hearts. So people of God rejoice. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. Whoever drinks from the wells of salvation will never ever thirst again. He who believes in Christ will be like a spring whose waters never fail.